Well, good morning, Cedar Street. I hope everyone is doing well this morning and that you are ready to join us as we continue our worship as we study God's Word together. Go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We'll be in Psalm 121. Uh, Psalm 121 this morning. As you're turning there, let me just say uh, something that I think we already know is that we live in a world, in a society where we value self-sufficiency. And there's nothing wrong with being self-sufficient per se, uh, but the Christian life we are called to die to self and live to Christ and to be dependent on Christ. This is the paradoxical truth of our faith, is that we are constantly called to die to self so that we so that we may live in Christ. And the one way we do that is to rejoice in our inability to do something. Or to say it another way, admit that we need help. In fact, Paul would say it like this in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 9, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. You see, on the face of that statement, that may seem like crazy talk. We do not naturally boast about being, uh, if you will, financially weak or occupationally weak or relationally weak. We don't really boast in our weakness as a people. We want to prove to others that we are good, that we are self-sufficient, that we are strong. How many, how many times does a uh, short person, a vertically challenged person, go to Walmart and reach for the very thing on the top shelf just to prove that they did that? I know that I've been there on a few occasions where I reach for the top shelf and uh, I stand on the very uh, top of the shelf there, on the bottom shelf to get to that. But all that being said, Paul calls us uh, to boast in our weakness because he knew and he wants us to know that God's miracles and his glories are found in his presence, not in our strength. You see, Paul understood what the psalmist declared in Psalm 1611, that in the presence of the Lord there was joy forevermore, and in his right hand pleasures forevermore. So how do we get to that point in the Christian life? How do we get to the point where we are willing to die to self so that we may be dependent on someone else for help? Remember, for Paul, that didn't happen overnight. And I say that to encourage you to know that this isn't going to happen in our lives overnight, in myself or yours. But I believe the answer can be found in Psalm 121 as we ask the question, where does our help come from? If you will read with me Psalm 121, verses 1 through 3, I'll read out loud, you read along silently with me. Psalm 121, verses 1 through 3 says this, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you so much for the truth of your word right now. That, Lord, you call us to be dependent on you, not our own strength, not our own abilities. And so, Father, I ask that, Lord, you would use your servant Lord, to proclaim a message of hope that is beyond his ability to do. Lord, I need you right now. Oh, I need you. So, Father, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross and that, Lord, you would challenge our hearts as a church body, that, Lord, we would die to our self-sufficiency 
and we would live in dependency on you because you are worthy of that. What I ask and I pray for this in Christ's name, amen. You know, church, if we think about the past few months, uh, it has taught us that we cannot control the chaos of life. Uh, I was talking to my best friend Ryan earlier this week about just what 2020 has brought us so far. If you think back uh, to the very beginning of 2020, we started out uh, like this. We started out as in our government with an impeachment trial. And then we entered into a global pandemic. And then we found out about a thing called killer hornets. And sadly, we see that racial injustice is still prevalent in our society. We have an economic uneasiness. And by the way, in case you missed it, there were three named tropic storms before the first day of summer. And now, the Sahara Desert dust has found its way from Africa to the continental United States. And I'm pretty sure that within that dust cloud, there could be a spirit of a mummy that will come haunt us. I don't know. And folks, it's just June. I can't wait to see what else 2020 is going to bring us. And I know that list, there's some seriousness to it. There's some kidding to it. But all that being said, if we take a serious look at that list that I just said, we can become very much uneasy. We begin to wonder what's next. What next will happen in this life that we can't control and that will cause us to just wonder what to do. And sometimes when we think like that, fear can consume us. Insecurity can be an all-consuming reality that cripples us where we stand. And this was no different 3,000 years ago when the psalmist probably penned this particular refrain. You see, Israel knew of insecurity. The fear of the unknown was a present reality for them as it is us. The only difference is, is that we have smartphones in the 21st century and they don't. You see, every year Israel would travel from the safety of their home to the faraway city of Jerusalem to go to the temple to be part of one of the three festivals that would happen that year in their life. In fact, Jesus himself would have traveled from Nazareth to Jerusalem just to be part of one of these feasts. And he would travel up the treacherous roads that would lead to the temple in Jerusalem. And on these journeys, the people met threats from above. They met threats from below, threats that they couldn't even predict. And oftentimes, robbers would hide in the caves ready to pounce on them and their unsuspected journeys. Because of this, they would feel fragile. They would feel vulnerable. They would feel unsafe. Psalm 121 would have been the refrain that Israel would sing as they journeyed to meet with God in the temple. And just as the, the roads that led to Jerusalem were dangerous, so too are the roads of our lives. While we carry God's promises with us by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells within us, life still feels desperate at times, does it not? Temptation lies in wait for us each and every day, ready to pounce on us. Trials ambush us and our loved ones. Besetting sins still linger. And disaster and crisis come unannounced into our lives. Each day we feel the need for help in this life. And this psalm speaks to that cry. The cry of our hearts for stability in the midst of chaos. So how do we find such assurance? Let's look back at the text this morning and let's see where we find our hope. Where do we find our help? Again, Psalm 121 will get us to ask this question. Where do we look in times of trouble? 
verses one through two again say this, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Again, Psalm 121 would have been the refrain, would have been the song that Israel would be singing to themselves as they would go up to the temple in Jerusalem. And they would, as they approach the hill of the Lord, to worship him. And so it begins with, I will lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? The psalm begins with the audience looking to the hills that are surrounding them, the hills that seem to offer protection and joy in the midst of the chaos of life. And they ask, where does my help come from? Will it come from these hills that I can actually see, that I can tangibly touch if I needed to? I like what one commentator shares regarding this particular psalm. They share that the hills could have possibly represented the idols or the false gods that, was, that, the, that the other nations worshipped and that plagued the worship of Israel. You see, for many civilizations, they would uh, build their places of worship on a high place. And in doing so, it created the illusion of havens of hope. And so as the people would look in their cities, they would be able to look to the top of the hills and see their temples where their false gods lived. And they would think that there is hope, there is security. And so it was very possible that the psalmist is acknowledging the issue of false worship among his kinsmen and seeking to help them to fix their gaze away from the false gods to the one true and living God. So the psalmist begins his song with this, asking this question. As his eyes look to the hills, where does my help come from? But notice here, but notice that the eyes of the psalmist do not rest on the hills themselves, right? Verse 1 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? He doesn't leave his eyes resting on those hills. Rather, his eyes go beyond the hills. And he says in verse 2, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The psalmist does not look to the gods of this world for help, but to the king of kings and to the Lord of lords. He looks to the one who can truly help him in his desperate times of need. He fixes his gaze on Emmanuel. He reminds himself that in times of trouble, he should not look to the broken saviors of this world who offer security but cannot actually provide it. Rather, he looks to the one who supplies all of his needs according to the abundant grace and mercy that flow from the throne of God. The psalmist declares that in these two sentences, the futility to looking to the idols for safety and that true salvation Hear me, that true salvation comes from looking to Christ in times of trouble. Let me ask this question this morning. Who or what do you turn to in times of trouble, church? Where do you turn to when life gets hard? Do you look to comfort? Do you look to what you can bring to the table? What do you look to for security when the chaos of life is surrounding you? Now, you may not be turning to little stone statues of, of little deities and uh, worshiping those, but I will say that there are other ways that idolatry creeps into our lives. You see, we're not so advanced from the ancient cultures that we do not struggle with idolatry. We simply dress it up different, in different ways and call it different things. 
In fact, as the old reformer declares, the heart of man is a perpetual factory of idols. Give us a chance and we'll replace God with anything. Every object, person, ideal, dream, and that is true about who or what we seek help from. We will turn anything into an idol and we will worship that. For an idol is anything that promises a life of security and joy apart from God. You see, in verse 1, when the psalmist describes the hills, he is considering those who would look to the hills for security and joy, and ultimately the false hope that would be found in those hills. The false hope is precisely what makes an idol an idol, for it cannot deliver what it promises that it can. Let me just add here, okay? Let me just add here that idols are not usually all bad things. They can be good things in our lives that become ultimate things in our lives. Things that you believe will guarantee you joy, happiness, and security. So ask yourself this morning, what is it in your life that you are seeking for those things? Is it Christ? Or is it the things of this world? What do you think? As long as I have this, whatever this is, my life will be complete. What do you so desperately need that you can't imagine a fulfilled life without it? You see, idols, they're subtle in their influence on us. You generally, okay, you generally do not wake up going, I'm going to worship whatever X, Y, and Z is this morning. I'm going to worship this thing rather than God. Rather, it is a subtle progression of the heart that shifts ever so slightly away from Christ and takes our eyes off of worshiping the beauty and the centrality of Christ away from Him and onto whatever it is that we think will satisfy us. And that's what makes idols so dangerous, church. Their subtle influence on us is so pervasive and we don't even know we are drowning until it's far too late. Let me just add again here. Idols can be good things in your life that have become the ultimate things in your life that you look to for security in times of trouble. Let me just give a few examples of what I mean. I have often seen the good desire of someone wanting to have a a, 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 a marriage in their life, a relational uh, relationship in their life, and they look to that as thinking that if they just have this, then they'll be satisfied. If I just have a loving wife, then everything in my life will be good. If I just have a, a doting husband, then everything in my life will just be great. Or if I just have children, or if I just have grandchildren, or if I just have this, whatever this is in my family that I think that I need, then I will have everything my life has ever wanted. Do you see how a good thing has become the ultimate thing that we then worship away from Christ? It's not wrong to want these things. But what is wrong is when we take them and put them on the place of God and say, I'm going to worship that rather than the one who calls me to worship him. Let me give another example. I've seen the good of wanting to provide for one's family become the idol of always needing to achieve uh, one more financial benchmark. You need to get that one better paycheck. And to do that, you need to work 60, 80 hours a week just to be able to do that. And so you sacrifice time with your family in order to be able to provide for them what you think is the lifestyle that they need. 
But as I shared last week, they don't need your money. They need you to show them who Christ is. So let me just say, it is good for one to provide for their family. That is honoring to Christ. What is not honoring to Christ is workaholism, where you sacrifice time with your family in order to get that one more financial benchmark that you think you need to be successful. Again, you are replacing God with worshiping money. And the problem in these two things is not marriage or money, like I said. The problem comes when we trust in those things to bring the ever-present hope and peace into our lives when they can't fully deliver that. You will always be left wanting more when you look to those things for your joy, when you look to those things for your hope. Even though they give the appearance of safety and security, the psalmist knows when he looks to the hills and when we look to those other things, we should know that they can't fully provide them. We can't truly fully be provided security in anything else other than Christ. And so the psalmist knows that. Church, do you know that this morning? Or are you looking to the hills, thinking that the hills will provide for you? Fix your gaze on Christ this morning. If you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, hear that. Nothing else in this life will satisfy you. They are but broken joys of a candy-coated world that will not satisfy you. Only Christ can. So verse 2 declares, My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And in doing this, the psalmist is reminding himself, and we should be reminding ourselves of the eternal, all-sufficient God. In that moment, the psalmist fixes his gaze on the God of all of salvation. He looks and he lives on Yahweh. And he sees in Yahweh a superior joy to what the hills promise. In the light of his glory and grace, everything else pales in comparison to seeing the beauty and the centrality of Yahweh. And church, on this side of the cross... We can be rest assured in the promise of the gospel to overcome the idolatry of our life. You see, the idol of marriage or family may say to us, if you lose me, life won't be worth living. Or the idol of money may say to us, if you don't do enough to obtain me, I'll make you miserable. Church, idols are harsh taskmasters. If you fail them, you will pay dearly to them. But hear this. In the gospel, in the good news of what Christ did for us, Jesus says to us, you did fail me. You did fail me. But instead of destroying you, I'll let myself be destroyed for you. Instead of demanding a sacrifice, I'll become a sacrifice for you. See, this is the hope and the mercy that is the gospel. That Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he saves us from our own mindset that we need to have other things to satisfy us. And Christ says, I am all that you need in this life. 
And I have done all that is necessary for you to have salvation. I lived a life that you could not live, and I died the death that was meant for you, and I conquered sin, hell, and the grave in the resurrection, and now I am ascended to the Father, and I lived and intercede for you. Child, I love you. That is what Christ says to us in the gospel. That is the hope that we have in the gospel. That in Christ, unlike idols, we find the only God that when we obtain him, he will meet all of our needs. And when we fail him, he will forgive us. This is the promise and hope of the gospel. And when we receive this good news, when we receive this good news by grace through faith, all of the false promises of the idols that we think will satisfy us pale in comparison to the superior joy that it is to know our Savior. So let me ask this question this morning. Who are you looking to for help in the chaos of your life? Are you looking to yourself? Are you looking to your marriage, your children, your finances, your 401k? I like what St. Augustine says. St. Augustine said that things like worry, fear, sadness, and deep depression are like smokes from the, uh, smokes from the fire rising from the altars of our idolatry. Follow the trail of that smoke and you will see where you have substituted something for God. I have to do this on a daily basis, church. I have to do a heart check every day to see where it is that I'm worshiping. I need to find the smoke that leads to the altars of the idolatry of my own heart, and I need to snuff it out with the gospel. I fix my gaze on Christ. I look and I live on him. I consider the one who lived and died for me to have freedom from my idolatry. I consider the nail-scarred hands and the blood that was poured out for me on Calvary. And I think about that. And I think about how much Christ loves me and how foolish it is for me to go after anything else but him. I snuff out the altar of pride of besetting sins, of financial security with the eternal hope and joy of Christ. I like what John Piper shares here. He says, here is the secret of the power of faith to break the enslaving force of sinful attractions. Okay, if the heart is satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus the power of sin to lure us away from the wisdom of Christ is broken. Church, look and live on Christ this morning. Don't look to anything else, but look and live on Christ. Do not fix your gaze on the false hope of the idols of the hills that surround you that say that they can promise you other things. Rather, as verse 2 says, say it with me. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Secondly, this morning, we need to seek help at the highest hills. We need to seek help at the highest hill. Verse, verses 2 through 3. One of the things that I find remarkable about this psalm is that it is clearly reminding the people not to look to the false gods of the time period or of the time period that we live in 
but in the one who can sustain us through all of life's highs and lows. He wants us to fix our gaze beyond the hill and see the greatest hill, the hill of Calvary, where grace and mercy shine like a beacon to our lives, where the God of the universe meets us where we are and promises, promises to take care of us. Again, verse 2, look with me here. It says, my hope comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Verse 3 continues, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. There are two important truths here in verse 3 that I want us to consider this morning. The first is this. Our God sustains us. Our God sustains us. This is the promise to all professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The perseverance of the saints to the end. The Lord can keep your footing secure in this life because there is nothing that He cannot do. Nothing that will separate you from His love. He directs our path for the sake of His righteousness. Now hear me clearly. This does not mean we will not face calamity. This does not mean that we will not face hard times, that we will not suffer. But it does mean that we don't face it alone, that our God is with us, and He sustains us for His glory. You see, church, there is no, there is no crisis or circumstance that will shock our God this morning. There is no crisis or circumstance that will catch Him by surprise. He is sovereign over all things. And He will not be overwhelmed by anything that this life throws at us that will overwhelm us. He sovereignly rules over all things. And because of this truth, knowing that we will face trouble, knowing that we will face hard times, knowing that we will suffer for His namesake, we can take heart knowing that our God has overcome the world. Meaning this, that no matter what occurs in this life, be it a cancer report, be it the loss of a job, maybe a family member who's died, or a child who has become the prodigal of your family. He will sustain you through all of it for His glory. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion for His namesake. He, being God, will not let your foot be moved. The promise, the promise of verse 3 this morning finds its fulfillment in the gospel of Christ. You see, in the gospel, Christ was abandoned for us so that we would not taste the sting of loneliness. Christ took on shame and guilt so that we could be clothed in His righteousness. Christ secured our freedom and our sonship as sons and daughters so that when we feel like our identity is being taken away, we remember, no, our identity is found in Christ and Christ alone. You see, in the gospel, we know that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Paul makes this very clear in Romans 8 when he says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, there is absolutely nothing that you can do to separate yourself from God. No sin that you can commit that would make God love you any less. In Christ, our salvation is secured with a heavenly seal. and Nothing can take away that seal. As the old hymn declares, what grace that you entered our brokenness. You came in the fullness of time. How far we had fallen from righteousness, but not from the mercies of Christ. Your cross is our door to redemption. Your death is our fullness of life. That day how forgiveness flowed as a flood. Magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. God not only sustains us in salvation, but also in the tribulation of life. Because of God's sovereign care for you, every pain in this life is producing a particular glory that is beyond all comparison. Again, because of God's sovereign care for you, every pain, every pain that you've experienced in this life in your path to obedience is producing for you a glory that will last forever and comes because our God sustains us in this life. Our God keeps our footing sure. If church, one of the things that I know that makes what I just said a sure promise of future grace in my life is what I'm about to say. If God reached down into the pit of hell to redeem someone like me and someone like you, and he died for us, and he rose again securing our salvation, how much more so will he help us in this life? The God who loved us so much that he wouldn't let death and hell or a cross keep him from rescuing you and I. That God promises to help us in all things to keep our footing secure. I like what Charles Spurgeon says, he says, listen to the voice of the Lord speak. I will help you. It is a small thing for me, your God, to help you. Consider what I have already done. What? Not help you? I bought you with my blood. What? Not help you? I died for you. Since I have done the greater, will I not do the lesser things for you? God has proven once and for all his willingness to help us. Church, because of the hope of the gospel, because of the hope that we have secure in Christ and what he did for us, we can rest assured that our God will keep our footing sure, that he will preserve us till the end. But then we get this promise at the end of verse 3, and that's this, our God does not slumber. You know, when I was a boy, I loved reading Greek mythology. I loved reading the stories of the old heroes of old against the uh, evil that would take place, Hercules versus the Hydra, or Achilles, or uh, 
the story of Thebes and the Minotaur, all of these things. I loved reading those. Those captivated my mind. But the one thing I noticed when I would read those stories of Greek mythology is that their gods looked like us. Their gods grew hungry. Their gods grew thirsty. Their gods would live and die. And their gods would sleep. Their gods resembled mankind in their frailty. Hear me. Our God, Yahweh, the living God, does not resemble us in our frailty. We are made in his image, yes, but that does not mean that he is made in ours. We grow hungry. We grow thirsty. We live and die. We fall asleep, but our God does not. Our God does not grow tired. Our God does not grow weary. And I am reminded about this every day of my life right now. For the parents out there, you know what I'm about to talk about. My days consist of getting up sometimes around 3 a.m. to 4 a.m., and there is not enough coffee in the world sometimes to give me enough energy. Our God doesn't struggle with that. Our God has eternal energy. He's better than the Energizer Bunny. Because he made all things. He's eternal in his scope. He's eternal in his power. And he does not grow weary. Though we are weary, though we are frail, though we will slumber, he does not. And he works eternally for us. Aren't you glad that our God is not like us? But that he's eternal in his scope and power? He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the God who always will be there when we call on Him. We're not going to get a number. We're not going to be put on a waiting list. No, our God comes to us. He is here. He is with us. He does not slumber. And the fact that God does not slumber means that we can. means that we can rest. Because God is sovereignly watching over us, we can rest easy knowing that we are in His hands. So let me just ask a question this morning as a point of practical application. What is it that you are holding on to white-knuckled this morning, thinking that you need to be able to do this in your own power? And God's saying, give it over to me and watch what I can do. What is it that you are holding on to this morning that you won't trust God with? Is it a health report? Maybe it's your finances because of everything that's been happening in the past few months and you're worried how you're going to pay the next bill? Maybe it's a family member's salvation. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. But I bet there's someone out there right now watching this that you're holding on to something. And God has been telling you, give it over to me. You rest and let me work for you. Let me do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You see, church, we're not able, we're not made to carry the weight of all of our problems. We will, go, uh, we will grow tired and weary, but God does not. Hand it over to Him this morning and trust Him with it. Rest knowing that our God does not slumber. We're about to enter into a time of invitation this morning. And for some of you, 
You need to do business with God this morning. You need to destroy the altars, the idols of your life, and return to the one true God. You need to look beyond the hills that you've been looking to for protection and security and fix your gaze on the beauty and the centrality of Christ and read the word, get into worship and pray and confess that you have not loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That you have cast idols in front of God. For others of you this morning, you're doubting in his sovereignty over the events of your life doubting that he will keep your footing secure. And because of that, you're working to ensure your own joy. You're not resting in what Christ has done for you. And let me tell you something. If you're a Christ follower this morning, repent of that. Repent and return. Look to the hills of Calvary and see that he will sustain you, that he will keep your footing secure. My hope and my prayer this morning, church, is this that we would look and live on Christ. And as a church, we would fix our gaze beyond the hills that we can see and see that just beyond the hills is our God on the hill of Calvary. And he calls us to look and live on him. Again, verse 2 says, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you are faithful. And Father, I pray that, Lord, you would would help us, all of us, to destroy the idols of our hearts. That, Lord, we would put to death the things that we have placed in that we have placed away from you. And Lord, we're not honoring you. So Father, I pray that you would help us to kill them with the power of the gospel. Lord, as the old preacher says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So Father, I pray that you would help us to gird the loins of our minds and be ready for action, as 1 Peter 1.13 says, that we would be holy as you are holy, 1 Peter 1.16. Lord, we ask for this. Father, I pray that you would help us to keep our footing secure in the knowledge that you are holding us this morning. Father, I pray that, Lord, we would stop trying to do what we can do in our own power and our own strength, but, Lord, we would rest in what you have done for us and find joy and comfort knowing that we can rest while you do not slumber. Lord, I pray for this. Lord, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do that you would challenge our hearts so that we are more like you. Father, I ask for this in the name of Christ. Amen.